In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my queue. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. And today we have some exciting topics. Uh, we will start off with a little bit of an update on coronavirus, just to keep you guys in the loop. Then we'll talk some about um, Wisconsin and their primary there and also voter suppression in general. And then we'll review um, an update on you know Bernie's dropout and endorsement of Joe Biden. But first, we have a listener question. And this comes from listener uh, Marcus Adikusuma. Uh, in full disclosure, he is my brother-in-law. And he says... <laughs> and, my, and my former soccer teammate. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we're interconnected in many, many ways. Yes. Um, and he <laughs> says, hey, Michael, here's something I would like to hear on your podcast. Question. If the United States was under a Star Wars government system, which one would you choose? Galactic Republic? Confederacy of Independent Systems? The Empire, the First Order. <laughs> so we thought we'd take a couple minutes to go over that. Now, Mar Marcus did say that if we wanted, we could have him on the show as an expert, and he would uh, take a couple of hours to walk us through it. Um, <laughs> yeah. We're probably just going to take a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Marcus, but uh, but yeah, definitely definitely worth discussing. Um, when I first saw that, my first thought was, well, what about the rebellion? I mean, but I guess that wasn't really a system of government that was fighting for a system of government. Um, mm. so first off the empire and the four, first order are out cause you know, authoritarianism, screw that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even, even if you exclude all of the murder, like just, just take out that just authoritarianism, like rule by force is just not gonna, is not gonna yeah. cut it. So. Not a fan of that. And also like, did you know that the Darth Vader helmet was actually based on the Nazi helmet? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the, it was it was it was supposed to be a d direct uh, allusion to um, to Nazis in real life. Wow. Um, yeah. So yeah, those guys were out. <laughs> yeah. Um, that that would I guess that brings us to the separatists because um, I, I would say they're still evil though. Like, hmm. I mean, you might argue, oh well, but they were fighting against the Republic because it was ruled by the Sith Lord, but they were also receiving instructions from the Sith Lord and they were committing atrocities and killing people and they were still mm. evil. You know, if you saw if, and if you saw the the Clone Wars, the, the TV series, sure. which is canon, then you know that they committed atrocities. So, no, they're out. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so I think the only viable answer would be the uh, Galactic Republic, which is in some ways a dissatisfying answer because like. <laughs> You see this weak body that seems to be just waiting for someone to take like dictatorial control of it. And like like from from my observations, it seems like while it, it looks like a parliamentary system, it doesn't have the controls and the checks and balances that you would like to see in like a government, especially one of that size. Yeah. You know, like you'd need Basically, something like a Supreme Court. Now, they probably do have something like that because it's it's based on it tends to like reference um, current yeah, governmental but, structures. Uh, but, but you need something with courts, like power. To, but like, also, the courts apparently take even longer to decide things from than the Senate. Ah, uh, yes, um, that is a direct quote. <laughs> that is a direct quotation. Yeah. Um, but that was from so, Queen Amidala, so I don't know if like that. <laughs> who I I guess was I mean apparently she was elected, so I guess she was kind of like the governor of the planet. I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, but she was also thirteen, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was. Anyways, um. But what, what, what else is interesting is, so when it comes to parliamentary systems, which the Galactic Senate is clearly a parliamentary system, meaning that the chief executive, in this case the Supreme Chancellor, is not directly elected by like the people of the galaxy. Instead, uh, the people of the galaxy elect representatives from the planets 
to then come to the Galactic Senate and then vote on who that chief executive is going to be, which mm -hmm. also means that they can do things like hold votes of no confidence in order to remove chancellors that they think, oh, you're, you're crappy. Um, yeah. But what this also means is that in order for the chancellor to have a government, they have to have a coalition. Mm -hmm. And the coalition, as we saw from the movies, uh, ended up having unchecked power. Yeah. And that, that, that always exists in parliamentary systems where the, the minority party, the minority party ends up um, just having no power whatsoever mm -hmm. when there is a coalition and they kind of act more as a, uh, as an opposition of, let me tell you how much better things would be if we were in charge. But yeah. until there is another election, they cannot be in charge. Yeah, but the challenge with not having a really rigorous system of laws that like are really hard to get around and regulations and really like um, functional bureaucracy is that you do get a system where if you can line up all the pieces in the right way, you have like the coalition basically is just an all powerful group um, of people, and so yeah. like yeah, you got. You know, it it needs to be balanced, as all governmental systems do, with um, you know, really strong norms and structures. I would also like to point out, given the scale of the galaxy and how many planets are inhabited by rational beings that should be pres presumably voters, um, but are live in rural, really rural areas where I assume they don't actually get to vote. It's probably a really not a very representative, yeah, like, system of government. So yeah, mostly cities not. are represented. Um, and then they govern everybody. And given that, like, we're talking about, you know, total control and like and universal scale, you wonder about like how much of a mandate they could ever possibly have to actually rule the galaxy at that scale. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I think part of that is what the Jedi are for. Uh, you know, kind of enforcing mm. peace in the galaxy. Um, sure. The last, the last point that I would make though is, um, I think that. The Senate, uh, the Galactic Republic, after the uh, rebellion defeats the Empire, it must have been better because, remember, the Republic was destroyed by the First Order in the new trilogy, but that they had to do that through violence. Like, they had to blow the hell out of them. Um, mm. in, the, uh, in the prequels, they kind of just took them over from the inside, and, you know, it ended up being, I mean— Okay, yes, it was a bloody revolution in that they had to kill a bunch of Jedi, but sure. they didn't have to take over the Senate. They had already they already had the Senate. Yeah. So I would say that uh, my preferred version of um, of government, uh, if we're looking at it from a Star Wars model, would be the Galactic Republic after um, after the rebellion took over. So the New Republic. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. I mean, that seems like the only form of government that really makes sense. I don't know if the separatists, like, you, you called them out as, like, being evil and stuff. But it's possible that, like, if they if they weren't out there committing atrocities, a system of loosely interconnected but relatively independent confederacies might work better at that scale. You know, yeah. a few planets in a solar system. Like, you could literally divide it up by solar systems <laughs> and then... yeah. You know, yeah, no, um, I, I, I'm i definitely that. not against that. I'm not, definitely not against the concept of a confederacy like yeah. rule. I mean, basically, that would be like the the uh, world, like Earth, you know, a confederacy yeah. of like yeah. independent nations. Kind yeah. Of. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. But that particular uh, version of that, uh, of people yeah. committing atrocities, not okay with that. <laughs> Fair enough. Yep. All cool. right. Well, and with that said... Let's talk about a much lighter topic, COVID-19. Oh, great. Yeah. Thank goodness we can get past the hard stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So where are we right now? In the world right now, there are 2 million active cases that we know about of COVID-19. Uh, nearly 500,000 people have recovered from the disease, and approximately 120,000 people have died. So that puts the mortality rate, by my calculations, closer to like 5%. Um, which is really, really, really high. <laughs> in the U.S., we have about 586,000 uh, active cases with about 37,000 people recovered um, and 23,000, almost 24,000 deaths, um, which makes our mortality rate a little bit better than the rest of the world, but not that much. 
Yeah. Um, and just today I did see uh, Fauci discussing in a, uh, in a, in a uh, press conference that the curve is starting to flatten. And mm. I'm starting to see some people uh, that I know who are saying, oh, great, the, the curve is flattening. So I guess that means it wasn't as bad as we thought it would be. So why did we do all this stuff to try to prepare for it? And listen, that is like walking up to a firefighter who is uh, putting out a house with a hose as the flames are starting to die down and saying, Hey, why'd you bring so much water? I mean, the flames are already starting to die down. <laughs> yeah. And, and more, and like, I'd say even more presciently than that is like, we still have to do this because the curve is flattening now, but it's not gone. And, you know, if we loosen up our, our stringent controls now, the curve will no longer be flat. Yeah. It will and quickly start to great. peak out again. Yeah. Like don't don't think that we're that we're uh, that things are necessarily getting too much better. Um, it just means that we're starting to get more to the point where hospitals might be slightly less overwhelmed, but mm-hmm. still pretty overwhelmed. Yeah, it's true. And but on on a brighter note, at this point. Um, in the U.S., we have apparently conducted around three million tests, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good sign. Um, so, it, in some ways, we might be able to be getting ahead of this thing. But once again, uh, that's about all the good news we have. <laughs> so, on the stimulus side, um, as you know, we've got like three hundred and fifty billion dollars earmarked for small businesses. And at this point, only about 1.5% of that has been distributed, which is really not a lot, especially when time is of the essence when you're trying to like get ahead of a, an economic crisis like this. And so this is partially because the federal government, so, so a lot of this aid has been earmarked for um, this uh, like payroll protection program, which is where um, if small businesses of 500 employees or less keep their employees on the payroll or add them back to the payroll at similar to last year levels. Um, They're able to get refundable loans. Um, And they can also use 25% of those loans to cover things that are not payroll. Um, And so the government in their plan announced that, you know, banks would be providing these loans to small businesses and that they would get, you know, reimbursed from the federal government. So all the loans would be guaranteed by the government. But, and, and would then be like paid off for the businesses. So they would get the, a free loan, basically. But they provided like no details on exactly how to do this. And so banks and big businesses both have been really confused and trying to figure out it, figure it out themselves. And I don't know if you guys know this, but underwriting loans is really complex and is really highly regulated. Uh, and becomes infinitely more complex when you have no guidance, but you know that you'll still be highly regulated. <laughs> so banks <laughs> have like no idea what interest rates they should charge. Um, they don't know like how much due diligence they should be doing because normally when you underwrite a loan, you're interested in figuring out exactly what the risk of that loan is and pricing it accordingly. And you're not supposed to give loans to people and businesses that shouldn't that likely won't be able to pay them back, but if the government's guaranteeing them and we want all kinds of people and businesses to get loans, it's really unclear how they should be thinking about that risk. And so, and they're also not even sure of exactly how long, how long the loans are supposed to be outstanding. So like these banks have been like scrambling to try to figure this out. And literally like the night before they were supposed to announce these programs were finally given, um, information and like we're trying to literally build systems from scratch in order to keep track of these loans because there are just there are thousands of these businesses and tons of these loans are going to be given out and without structures and guidance like this could be a total total mess and we're talking about like 350 billion dollars that they might like lose track of some of (laughs) it's uh it's definitely not cool and on and you know as a result of some of that slow to respond stuff you know, we had 6.6 people, million people that filed for unemployment last week. And so far, like around 10 million people in the United States have lost their jobs. So that indicates that unemployment has already basically reached 
um, hmm. which is insane. I've been seeing these charts that have shown uh, weekly job loss, and it's compared to and it's compared what's going on right now to uh, other instant to other economic disasters such as uh, the Great Recession, mm-hmm. and it's not even close. Yeah, and it now- is it is insane just how much that shoots up that that has shot up during this time period yeah and it's like it's important to note that it doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that this is going to be worse than like the great depression and the great recession but it but it's it indicates the pace that things are changing so during the great recession like it seemed like everything happened really fast but it took weeks months even a couple of years to like fully get to the pit of the great recession and so as people were losing their jobs, they were losing them week by week. Whereas we, you know, basically had to shut down the economy yeah. in a couple that, of weeks. That's, that's a fair point. That, that is definitely a fair point. Uh, also, I think that it's worth noting who all will not be getting stimulus checks. Because mm. I know I haven't gotten my stimulus check yet. Uh, I, th- I was talking to my brother last night. He told me that he did get his, but he couldn't access it yet for some reason. Interesting. Um, so people that have incomes above 99,000 or single parents with incomes above 136,500 uh don't get a check mm-hmm. um or or at least they get less um dependent children over 16 dependent adults and when i say dependent i'm talking about uh people that have been claimed as dependents on the tax returns of somebody else and anybody without a social security number but you know luckily you know, we have got all of these complex programs going, um, hitting the economy all at once. We've got, you know, the potential for a lot of partisan gaming. But luckily, we've got independent, um, you know, honest actors out there managing and administering these programs. Isn't that right, Nathan? Well, you know, that was right. But hmm. uh, then Trump decided to fire the inspector general that had been promised by the stimulus bill that was the watchdog for deciding how the bailout money from the stimulus bill was going to be distributed. Remember, we had talked about that on the pod, and we had said that some of the criticisms of this is that the watchdog is only going to be as powerful as whoever the watchdogs happen to be. But Trump fired that watchdog. Yeah. And and we should not underestimate how concerning it is that Trump is firing inspector generals. They they their specific role is to be independent executors that are able to go directly to Congress. And in the last four days, he has fired two inspector generals, one of whom, Michael Atkinson, was um, fired specifically because he's the one that brought the whistleblower complaint regarding the Ukraine corruption to Congress. And Trump was like, "Yeah, well, you brought a you brought a complaint that didn't end up being uh, impeaching me, so I guess that means you're bad at your job, and so I'm going to fire you." <laughs> he literally no room was for like integrity in the Trump White House. It's it's just absolutely insane. So so we should be really concerned that he's trying to clean house of to like people that are supposed to be independent actors to keep his government honest. Yeah, the idea of an inspector general for stimulus money is to make sure that the money is going towards industries that actually need it um, in order to keep the economy going. Now, I actually argued that I thought the stimulus money for corporations was way too generous. Um, At the end of the day, I think that any bailout money or any stimulus money should have been focused on small businesses. But the fact that there was supposed to be someone who was going to determine that the money was not going to go to a bunch of uh, industries, corporations that may be friendlier to Trump. But now, with that lack of a watchdog, there is really no telling where that money is going to go and who that money is going to be given to and why they're going to receive that money. Mm -hmm. Whether it's going to be because they actually benefit the economy or because Trump likes them. Exactly. And, you know, the limit of Trump's, you know, willingness to do favors for the people he likes and not for the people that he doesn't, doesn't end there. You know, it's, it's, it even goes all the way through to like who gets, like which states get medical supplies. We called out a couple, like I think last week, 
that Trump was specifically told Mike Pence that he just shouldn't call governors that weren't nice to him because like Trump doesn't call them because, uh, you know, they're not friends. And so they're not implying that they wouldn't get the supplies and aid they need. And unfortunately, those supply, you know, worries, even if they're not out and out corruption, like is implied by Trump, they're not going away. There's some serious problems with our medical supplies right now. But luckily, we at least have Dr. Fauci in the White House. Hallelujah. (laughs) But that was actually put in danger when Dr. Fauci had some very strong words against Trump, which he said on CNN with Jake Tappert. Like, Michael, you are not going to believe how hardcore his criticisms of Trump were. Whoa. Like, insubordination. So this is what he said. He was asked by Jake Tapper about ways that they could have made this pandemic less devastating. And if they had started to impose social distancing, like in February instead of March, could things have been better? And Fauci said, quote, it's very difficult to go back and say that. I mean, obviously, you could logically say that if you had a process that was ongoing and you started mitigation earlier, you could have saved lives. Obviously, no one is going to deny that. What goes into those kinds of decisions is is complicated. But you're right. I mean, obviously, if we had right from the very beginning shut everything down, it might have it may have been a little different. But there was a lot of pushback about shutting things down back then. That was his criticism of Trump. Fire him. He he oh my gosh. He's he and, might as well And after he did that, Trump retweeted this uh, One America News Network reporter who was calling for the firing of Fauci for this, for this criticism, for this, him basically just saying, hey, maybe we could have done a little bit better if we had started doing things earlier. No, Trump cannot take any responsibility. Trump cannot acknowledge any mistakes. And anybody that points it out, despite what they're doing for the country, they deserve to be fired. I think I think what betrayed him was his use of the words like obviously and clearly. Like, of course, no one could question whether that if we started earlier would have saved lives. You can never underestimate the facts that Trump will question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, just today, which you know, again, we record this on Monday. Um, Fauci walked in front of the press corps. And basically said uh, that it was a poor choice of words. At one point, a reporter asked him if Trump had forced him to make the statement. (laughs) And he said, everything I do is voluntary. Please don't even imply that. And he, all the time he's like blinking furiously, like yeah, exactly. Morse code, like they're, they're holding me against my will. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is like, look, reporters don't ask Fauci political questions. Yeah. Because he at this point is the only thing standing between us and millions of people dying from this disease. He's the he's the expert. He's the person who actually has a level head on it. He's been doing a pretty decent job, all things considered. And without him, we're screwed. And he, yeah, <laughs> and he is one tiny ass Trump criticism from being fired. Yeah, we cannot afford for him to be fired right now. And as much as I hate to say this, as much as I hate to say that we need this guy to semi massage Trump's ego in order to save this country from oblivion. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I hate to say that that's the reality right now. Yep. So don't ask him political questions. Just let him do his job. Let him discuss the disease itself. And let's just hope that this idiot of a president doesn't once again, put his ego over the country. Yeah. Seriously. Like, and just one more thing that I want to bring up that Trump recently said that is so funny, but is so scary was something that he said about the virus itself. For those of you that know a thing or two about medicine, you know that antibiotics are to fight bacteria. 
Biotic is the important yeah. part of the word. <laughs> exactly. So if something is a virus, antibiotics are not going to help. And yet, Trump had a different theory for why antibiotics aren't effective in fighting coronavirus. He said when he was talking about the virus, he described it as, quote, a very brilliant enemy and a, quote, genius. <laughs> These viruses, they're very tricky. They, they, they go into your cells and they pretend, they pretend to be them and they're, they're, very, they're very tricky geniuses. <laughs> yeah, and, and he thought that the reason why antibiotics couldn't fight them is because they were too smart. There is actually a shred of truth in what he's saying. Uh, antibiotic resistance is a thing. Uh, so basically when um, you use antibiotics, when you overuse antibiotics, it kills most of the bacteria, but the bacteria that it doesn't kill ends up being resistant to uh, antibiotics. Um, and then that bacteria reproduces and it makes the antibiotics less effective. So that actually is true, but he was talking about the coronavirus, which is a virus, not bacteria. It does not mutate in response to a, a antibiotic because it isn't affected by an antibiotic. And does anybody honestly think that Trump understands antibiotic resistance? <laughs> does anybody think that? <laughs> yeah. Trump's like, I mean, me and the virus, very stable geniuses. Yeah. <laughs> we, go, we go way back. <laughs> It's fantastic. <laughs> I give it to all my friends. I give it to my staff. <laughs> and now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So Nathan, what's our tip this week? So yeah, uh, every week, as you all know, we like to come onto the podcast and discuss things that you can do small things that you can do to try to make the world a little bit of a better place for everybody. And usually we do tips that focus on how you can help other people. But today we want to focus a little bit on how you can help yourself. So this entire ordeal that we're all going through has been very difficult on a lot of people, some people worse than others. And it is important to do some self-care, to yeah. do some self-accommodation, mm -hmm. no matter who you are. And if that means uh, making a meal that um, has some comfort food in it, as long as you're not like overdoing it, um, if that means maybe watching some funny YouTube videos or playing a video game with a friend who's on the other side of the world. Yeah. Um, if that means making sure to stay in contact with your family uh, through Zoom sessions or through Skype or whatever video chat you might be doing, then you should prioritize that. Yeah. So think about yourself during this time. Totally. Yeah, and I would encourage everybody to try to be as self-aware as possible because I found personally that it's been, it's been easy to assume that I haven't been very affected until, you know, I get to a moment where I'm feeling especially anxious or frustrated or stressed. And then I realize that like, oh, like I'm in this really weird situation that has put me outside of my comfort zone. And I haven't been even paying attention to the fact that I've been feeling that way. And so, yeah, I would encourage everyone to just take some time to check in with themselves mentally and emotionally and, you know, personally, I found it to be really rewarding to take a few minutes um, whenever I'm feeling a little anxious to do, you know, like a 10 minute meditation. I like guided meditation. You can find that stuff on YouTube pretty easily. Um, Headspace is a great app, which has 10 free um, sessions of, of guided meditation. But also, this is something that um, Nathan's wife, Jess, messaged us about um, to include is 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 that this is especially not a time when you have to like put yourself under more pressure than necessary. I've seen so many yeah. like people saying like, Oh, well now that I have to stay home, I should just be working out all the time or I should be losing weight. Or, you know, if, if I don't come out of this, you know, with a hobby and money that I make on the side, like I've wasted my time and that's just, you know, yeah, not true. You know, it's like, it's like, 
you're you're probably not more freed up than you would be otherwise and there's still a lot of you know there's there's physical time like there's the time that you spend in your day and then there's also like mental space and having the mental space to do things is tough right now because i know for me a lot of it is taken up by just a background awareness of the difficulties of the situation yeah so take care of yourself and that's tips for good All right. So up next, we're going to talk a little bit about voting rights, specifically focusing on the recent Supreme Court decision about Wisconsin, which decided that they would not accept ballots that were mailed in, but postmarked after the election. And considering the fact that we are currently in the midst of a pandemic and people might not have planned to do mail-in ballots weeks back, Mm -hmm. it kind of makes sense to say, okay, well, We don't want people to be coming in. We want people to be mailing in ballots. So don't come to the polls, stay home, and mail in your ballots. And that's what the, you know, Democratic governor and Democrats of Wisconsin tried to do. Like, they tried to do the right thing, which was um, to enforce the shelter-in-place order, which is, you know, in force in the state of Wisconsin, um, and you know, support social distancing, which is recommended by the White House. <laughs> and and then, and so all they were trying to do was, well, first, initially they tried to postpone in-person voting, which just an, until June, so that, you know, it could allow the coronavirus pandemic to, to flatten a bit and so that we could then, you know, so that Wisconsin could then go to the polls with more safety. Because, you know, two of the cities most hard hit are uh, in, in Wisconsin are Milwaukee and Madison, which um, conveniently for Republicans uh, tend to vote Democrat. So, like, if they yeah. can suppress votes in those urban areas that are hardest hit because it's dangerous, literally physically dangerous to go vote, then, you know, it only benefits them to do that. And let's not forget about how this might affect the general election. I mean, Wisconsin is considered a critical state in the general election. Mm -hmm. So if there is a, if either we are still within the same pandemic or if there happens to be a second wave, which there very well could be, this sets a terrible precedent for making sure that Democrats who did the right thing said, hey, I'm going to stay home because I don't want to get sick but aren't able to mail in their ballots in time that their votes just don't count. Yeah. And crazy thing about this is that the justification for all of the, all of the conservative justices, their justification was that this would uh, make people question the integrity of the election. Yeah. As if preventing thousands and thousands of people from voting wouldn't undermine the integrity of the election. Like, Which is exactly what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said when she wrote the dissenting opinion. Yeah. Which was, no, you idiots, not letting people vote who should have voted, yeah. who stayed home on the day of the election because there's a goddamn pandemic. That, that undermines the integrity of the election. Yeah. This just goes to show that there is no such thing as strict constitutionalists and no such thing as just uh, Supreme Court justices that are just like, oh, I'm only interpreting the law. All judges are activist judges, full stop. Yeah, it's 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 astounding. And like, we should care about this election. To Nathan's point, um, you know, obviously not not even only because the people in Wisconsin deserve a representative democracy like everybody else, but also because you know, of the influence on the 2020 general, and also the fact that they elected a state Supreme Court justice in this election who will preside over questions of, you know, voter ID laws and could potentially have a significant and outsized influence on, like, um, voter suppression in the state. Which, by the way, Trump accused the governor of Wisconsin for trying to delay the election... Candidate. To try to hurt that Supreme Court candidate who Trump had endorsed. He was like, oh, the Wisconsin governor has it out for me, and he's doing this because he's trying to hurt me. No, you idiot. He's doing it because we're in a pandemic. Yeah, he's trying to hurt my stable virus friend. 
(laughs) (laughs) It's not like this wasn't a big deal. Like in Milwaukee, they had something like five uh, polling stations open. Five for the whole city of Milwaukee. Yeah, you should have seen... The, if you haven't seen the pictures already, go online and look at the pictures yeah. of people lined up hours down the street. To wait. Actually, you know, using social distancing, still standing six feet away from each other, mm-hmm. but just these lines that just went down sidewalks and streets, and yeah. it was insane. Five for the entire city of Milwaukee. Yeah. And at this point, so so initially it was estimated that. Um, if they didn't allow mail-in ballots to be counted after the postmark date, that they would um, receive about 27,000 ballots that wouldn't be counted. And that's about, so to put that in perspective, that's about five times the margin that decided the election in Wisconsin last year, Hmm. which is insane. And so since then, the numbers have only gotten more severe. So, 11,000 people requested absentee ballots that weren't even fulfilled. They weren't even sent out by the state to people to be able to vote in time because the whole thing was such a mess because they were trying to like determine whether they were going to have the election or not or postpone it or not um, that like it would be almost impossible to figure out exactly how you should vote. People are still coming in, dropping off their ballots, knowing that they, maybe not knowing, but like in when it's clear that they won't be counted. And at this point, um, there are 185,000 outstanding absentee ballots that haven't been received. Insane. Insane. So, so let's talk a little bit about exactly what the Supreme Court did. So what they were v- reviewing was a lower court decision um, to, about whether um, to allow ballots to be counted after the uh, election date of April 7th. And the lower court decision was um, basically only to allow, uh, to require that the ballots be received by April 13th, so less than a week later. But instead, the Supreme Court um, determined that they should be postmarked by April 7th. You know when that decision came out? Mere hours before Election Day. So, like, it would have been... Under any circumstance, the the court should balance the practicalness of their decision, right? Like, like it is common for them to recognize whether something is possible or not, and include that in their decision. The fact that they basically said, "Yeah, these people are not going to be able to vote; they're not going to be able to postmark their ballots in time." We haven't even defined what an official postmark is or like what counts, but it's just it's not going to happen, and we don't care. And the most brazen part of this whole thing is that the conservatives on the Supreme Court said that mail-in ballots would destroy the integrity of the election. So allowing people to vote by mail would destroy the integrity of the election. They made this decision remotely from home. So when they were deliberating on this, they weren't actually together. They weren't actually at the Supreme Court. They did this remotely. So they recognized that they needed to stay safe from the virus and to maintain social distancing. But they weren't willing to say, maybe other people should do that. Maybe people in Wisconsin should do that. Mm -hmm. So if we vote remotely, that's fine. But we can't let them do that brazen as hell yeah and strictly along party lines like it was a five four decision five republicans against four democrats and if it it, it's not even pretending not to be partisan at this point because yeah you know as i mentioned like the city's hardest hit in wisconsin are the ones that are most likely to go democrat and let's not forget that those cities also have the largest black populations in wisconsin so, you know, they're very quickly getting back to the, the long-term American tradition of racial disenfranchisement. And it's like, when will seeking voter suppression and trying to pack the courts with people that will, you know, prevent Democrats and minorities from voting, when will it end? It's just astounding to me. Another thing that happened that is hilarious, because you might be saying, well, you know, 
I, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that this is about Republicans trying to undermine democracy. I'm not convinced yet. So Democrats have been saying for years that voter suppression laws, comprehensive voter ID laws, are, number one, trying to solve a problem that there is no evidence exists on a widespread level, and two, are specifically targeted to make people that are more likely to vote Democrat not vote. To which Republicans have responded by being like, oh, no, no, it's about voter fraud. It's definitely about maintaining the integrity of the election. It's about voter fraud. Even though there's no evidence for it, that's about voter fraud. So Trump, as is in his beautiful character, said the quiet part out loud. He was uh, calling in to Fox and Friends. He was talking about the stimulus package and the negotiations. Included in that package was an increase in funding for absentee and vote-by-mail options. Trump commented on it, saying, quote, The things they had in there were crazy. They had things, levels of voting, that if you agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. <laughs> hey, Don, here's an idea. <laughs> Maybe instead of blowing the hell out of democracy in order to get elected, you could try to, I don't know, have decent-ass policies that actually help people? Yeah. You ever thought about that? He even tweeted it. He even gathered it in writing. He, he tweeted out, quote, The Republicans should fight very hard when it comes to statewide mail-in voting. Democrats are clamoring for it. Tremendous potential for voter fraud and, for whatever reason, doesn't work well for Republicans. And that's actually not true. There was a there. Uh, the Chicago Tribune actually did this really comprehensive article where they laid out several different studies that demonstrate that that's just that's just not true. So, um, first off, when it comes to partisan turnout, um, when there are switches to mail voting, there really isn't much of a difference. And sometimes it benefits Democrats, sometimes it benefits Republicans. So uh, Amelia Showalter, who is the data analytics director for uh, President Obama's 2012 campaign, um, she did this deep study into the all-male elections in Colorado in 2014 and Utah in 2016. And Colorado found that the Republicans actually outperformed their turnout in 2014 Whereas in, uh, in Utah, Democrats slightly overperformed, but because it's Utah, they still ended up losing. And then there was another study done in uh, North Carolina by professor of political science at Massachusetts, uh, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Charles Stewart, that showed that uh, in North Carolina in 2016, Republicans were more likely to vote by mail than by Democrats. So it's kind of all over the place. There's no clear partisan uh, advantage that comes with mail-in voting. Mm -hmm. The only thing is, it allows more people to vote. Which is... And that's important. And you know what? I will go ahead and say, even if there was a comprehensive study that showed that, um, that every single time it helps Republicans, even while I'm looking at this 2016 election uh, in North Carolina where it helped Republicans, even with that, I'm saying, that's fine, whatever. I don't give a damn. Let as many people vote as possible. If that favors Republicans, that's democracy for you. If it favors Democrats, that's democracy for you. Because I actually have values. I have act actually have some integrity. I believe in the principles of democracy. You don't. The whole goal is to get people to participate, to be informed, to help regulate themselves, re like elect their representatives, be participants. Because the ultimate reason to have the government is to serve the people. And the people can get out there and require that their representatives serve them and represent them, wherever that ends up, right? Like that is the whole point of our system. And any party or group whose strategy depends on trying to pre trying to prevent people from voting is antithetical to the fundamental values and requirements of our system it's just it's it's 
astounding to me that like this isn't a much bigger deal. Um, and and you wonder like I I wonder so best case scenario Republicans don't know about um, this article from the Chicago Tribune or all of these studies and they just assume that it's going to benefit Democrats and so that's why they're they're going out there and trying to disrupt our democracy. That's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, they know that it doesn't benefit. Um, Democrats from a partisan perspective, but they don't want poor people, they don't want minorities, and they don't want felons and other disenfranchised people to vote in the United States at all. And the last thing that I want to say about this, the last amazing story that I want to report about this is in case you thought that Trump hadn't said enough to demonstrate to us that he is a complete, dishonest hack. He actually did mail-in voting (laughs) for the Florida primary, which he presumably voted for himself in. And he was asked about this during a press conference. And his answer was, quote, Well, there's a big difference between somebody that's out of state and does a ballot and everything sealed, certified, and everything else. You see that you have to do with the certifications. And after that, he claims that, which with no citing no evidence at all, that if we allow mail-in ballots, there will be, quote, thousands of people sitting in someone's living room signing ballots. So he seems to think that if it's out of state, that everything's sealed and certified and everything else. The process of sealing and certifying is the exact same whether you're in state or out of state. You idiot. So basically, (laughs) it's okay to do mail-in ballots, but only when I do it. But when it's people that might not be voting for me, no, not okay. It's corrupt. It's a totally corrupt system. It's going to benefit Democrats in an unfair way, even though there's no evidence for that whatsoever. But what kind of criminal mastermind would have the foresight to to leave the state in order to to voter fraud? That's just too much. <laughs> the the mind can't comprehend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of, of the week. week. So Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well. Continuing with our story about voter disenfranchisement and hypocritical Republicans, our asshat this week is the Republican Speaker of the Wisconsin State Assembly, Robin Voss. Oh, Robin Voss. What did he do? So we had some comments about the decision to uh, say that people had to come in person and vote on Election Day in Wisconsin. He had some Uh, statements about how safe it would be for Wisconsinites to do that. So he was volunteering at a polling place, and he said, quote, Actually, there is less exposure here than you would get if you went to the grocery store or if you went to Walmart or any of those things we have to do to live in the state of Wisconsin. How is that possible? Like, that that doesn't make any sense. Here, come touch all these things that everybody else has touched, and you'll be less exposed than going and I don't know, not touching anything. <laughs> yeah. And another thing that he said was, "quote You are incredibly safe to go out." His level of hypocrisy in this verges on that as a Supreme Court, I will say, because yeah. he's saying these things two voters like and being interviewed while he's in full protective gear mask covered in plastic sheets he looks like he's a doomsday like person and he's out there saying no no perfectly safe (laughs) yeah this is something out of snl like this is the type of thing where uh you see someone standing in front of a burning house and saying, everything's okay here. Nothing yeah. to see here. We're all good. <laughs> we have everything under control. Yeah, the like, cartoon dog sitting in the burning house has more self-awareness than this guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is 
comically hypocritical. He is dressed head to toe in full protective gear. And he's saying that it's safe to go out? Are you serious? He's saying that, oh, this is safer than going to a grocery store. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, just brazen hypocrisy, brazen idiocy. He clearly has no shame whatsoever. As we have said, it was never about anything other than undermining democracy and trying to maintain power for the Republicans. So, Voss, congratulations for being our asshat of the week. So our final segment today, we're going to be discussing some primary news, or I guess lack thereof a primary news, because it is officially over. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Bernie Sanders and what happens here with Bernie Sanders. And we're also going to talk about Joe Biden and how Michael and I will be reconciling some of the allegations that have happened against Biden with our desire to defeat Donald Trump. And we'll have a discussion about where this podcast is going to go from here and what role we're going to be playing in our advocacy leading up to the 2020 election. So last week, in a tearful address, no, he didn't. He didn't cry. It was He was crying internally. Bernie Sanders dropped out of the 2020 Democratic presidential primary saying that uh, he could he uh, quote cannot in good conscience continue to mount a campaign that cannot win and which would interfere with the important work required of all of us in this difficult hour what a class act yeah <laughs> and and so specifically calling out you know the coronavirus concerns how important it is that we all you know take all the necessary actions um, that we can and i think make in you know, making a, an appropriate effort to refocus his energy on the place where we can have probably the most influence, which is, I think, trying to get delegates for the DNC or the uh, the convention and in uh, trying to partner with the Biden campaign more than try to beat the Biden campaign. Yeah, and that's an important point to make. So he has suspended his presidential campaign. However, that doesn't mean that the primaries are just not going to happen anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, he's still going to be on the ballot in the rest of the primary states. And he's yeah. encouraged people like, go ahead and go ahead and vote for me if you support my policies. Um, and the reason for that is not because that's going to make him win. He's acknowledged that he's not going to win and he's going to stop campaigning. But the more delegates that he has, the more he's able to influence the platform. For example... Yeah. During the platform in 2016, because he was able to rack up enough delegates to have a say in the platform, he was able to get some rules changed. Mm-hmm. For example, he was able to change the role of superdelegates so that they wouldn't be allowed to vote on the first ballot. They would only be allowed to vote in the second ballot if nobody got a majority. Uh, yep. He also was able to uh, get Hillary Clinton to sign off on his college tuition bill. Uh, he was able to get Hillary Clinton to at least agree to a public option, which has is now on the uh, the the Democratic platform, and mm-hmm. even and that has become the corporate Democrat stance which is at the time was kind of amazing. Um, And that's kind of how it's going to be operating uh, right now with his continued role in the, the primary from here on out. So I I would still suggest if you believe in Bernie Sanders's policies and you haven't voted yet, uh, you're in a state that hasn't voted yet. You can still vote for him. In fact, I would strongly encourage you to do that. There's uh, no doubt to influence the platform. Yeah, because let's be clear, it's not just it's not just him saying like, well, a lot of people voted for me, so you should listen to me. Because what happens is at the national convention, um, then you know it not only decides the nominee, which is presumptively um, Biden at this point, but they also decide to Nathan's point on the next year's rules or the next election's rules and on the official party platform, and that's not just a matter of influence either. Those rules and the platform um, get decided by committees 
And the DNC creates these committees with that representation that's proportionate to the number of delegates that each candidate has. So we, we literally get more seats at the table if Bernie gets more delegates and can have a substantive impact on the official party platform. So it's not just, you know, it's not just influence. This is, this is actual um, decision-making power. So definitely, if you're a, a Bernie supporter, worth getting out there. Still go to the primary, still vote, participate, because um, every delegate counts. Yeah. And, and I, I just want to say one more thing about Bernie Sanders' role in the race. Um, I've, I've talked a little bit about my personal reasons for uh, supporting Bernie Sanders in general. And I, I do want to say that, once again, he has shifted the Overton window in a lot of extremely important ways. Um, and just juxtaposing his race in 2020 to his race in 2016, I mean, remember when he was talking about a $15 an hour minimum wage in 2016, everybody thought that was nuts. Now that has become the establishment Democrat view. Mm -hmm. um, and he has actually been able to get Joe Biden to come to the left on several issues. Just today, which uh, is Monday the 13th, when we're recording this, he officially endorsed Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And he did this through a video that he did with Joe Biden that went up online. And in it, Joe Biden declared support. So Joe Biden had already declared support for uh, free college tuition for people making under a certain amount, which uh, at this point is um, families making under $125,000 a year. He has now come out in favor of debt forgiveness for families making under that. So uh, college debt forgiveness for families making under that. And that was Bernie's influence. Mm -hmm. um, he has also made uh, Green New Deal part of his platform on his website. Um, now, what exactly that's going to translate into is still up in the air because keep in mind the Green New Deal was more of a list of goals than uh, an actual concrete policy. Now, that being said... You know, he's still not in favor of Medicare for all, which I think that of all the issues to come more to the left on at this time period, uh, I'm not saying that it's great that he that it's not great that he came to the left on like college tuition, but I feel like Medicare for all should have been the no brainer. You but, mean like during the epidemic? <laughs> yeah, during the epidemic. I feel like of any time to uh, see some kind of moral out to come to the right side on that issue. Um, I feel like during an epidemic is the perfect time to be like, you know what? I was wrong. We should have Medicare for all. This was the perfect time to do that. And he hasn't done that. So I'm, I'm still annoyed with that. Um, I'm still annoyed that even if we do pass a public option, yes, that's going to be a lot better. Absolutely. But it's still going to involve premiums, deductibles, co-payments, which, is going to create more out-of-pocket expenses, expenses for average everyday Americans, which is still going to, in some ways, make it so that uh, a person's wallet will decide whether or not they can live in some circumstances, and I am absolutely not okay with that. But it is very clear that policy-wise, Joe Biden is completely superior to Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. That being said, we also can't ignore the fact that there is an outstanding sexual assault allegation on Joe Biden, which has not been investigated or really reported on much by the mainstream media. And, yeah. you know, when I think about this, I, I go back to my stance on the Kavanaugh hearing. So for the Kavanaugh hearing... Um, my stance was, look, I wouldn't go as far as to say that we should always believe any accuser, no matter what. I, I would I would not go that far. I, I would say that accusers don't really lie about this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen very often. It's very rare for that to happen. So I'm usually inclined to take it very seriously and to say, okay, there absolutely needs to be investi an investigation. And evidence that um that feeds into that narrative for me often involves 
Uh, if it's something that happened years ago, if there are people that come out and say, yeah, this person told me about this at the time, mm -hmm. and you know, it happened before this person was someone who was in power, so if they told them that at the time, then it's not like this was a concerted effort to destroy their career that they weren't even in yet. And there's similar corroboration with Biden, with his accuser, there's a friend and a brother who have um, confirmed that she did talk about this at the time that it happened, which was in the 90s. So yeah. my thought with Kavanaugh back then was there needs to be a comprehensive investigation to make sure that we're not about to put a sexual predator on the Supreme Court. And instead yeah. what happened was this completely sham investigation in which they weren't allowed to interview any witnesses. There were like 20 witnesses that had contacted them and said, we can, like, you should interview us. We have, we have information that uh, might be valuable to your investigation. Nope, we're not going to talk to any of them. And then they came back and pretended, okay, well, we found nothing. So, you know, inconclusive, whatever. And, you know, let's be clear. Like, we don't have that in this case. We don't have, like, tons and tons of witnesses coming forward. But we do have a couple and enough to indicate that there needs to be an investigation because the fact that we don't have all of the information that we as voters need to make the best decision possible is a problem in and of itself. Yeah. It feels like a really difficult moral conundrum for me because I don't want sexual predators to be in positions of power for them to potentially continue to um, exploit other people. And... If there is not investigation or if there is not more reporting to find more information, then I cannot be confident that Joe Biden is not a sexual predator. And that sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And look, I don't want to think he's a sexual predator. I, I'm not yeah. saying that I'm trying to seek a narrative to destroy Joe Biden. I want him to beat Trump because I hate Trump. But yeah. we can't ignore this. And people who are advocates... Uh, of the Me Too movement or the Time's Up movement, which, by the way, Time's Up refused to represent this woman, you can't just ignore this. Yeah. You can't consider yourself a an Ally. activist, a true activist, and just ignore this. You yeah. have to take it seriously. So at this point, it feels more like a cover-up. It feels like people are purposely ignoring this, and that is not okay. That being said... It is also not lost on me that the president, the current president, is an admitted sexual predator. He's yeah. been accused by like 20 or so women, and he's on tape saying, bragging about grabbing women by the pussy. Yeah. Which he was actually asked about. I remember when he, he was asked about um, in the debate that he had right after that, and he refused to he refused to say that that was sexual assault. Like he was like, "Oh no 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 no, grabbing women by the pussy when they're you know uh, when they haven't consented that that that's not sexual assault." Which leads me to wonder, like, what on earth could be then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think this brings us to our last area of discussion today, which is how we're going to be covering this election and trying to maintain, trying to walk that really fine line going forward. Because to Nathan's point, we don't want the decision to be between an admitted sexual predator and an alleged sexual predator. But unfortunately, that is the current decision we have. And so I think like many people, our number one imperative has to be to get Trump out of office. But in order to balance that with our moral imperative to represent the truth and try to bring light and shed light on this narrative that isn't getting enough attention but needs to in order for us to be confident in our election, um, that we're going to try to... Every time we cover uh, a story about Biden, when, we, when we're advocating for him, for his policies, we're going to wrap each segment discussing and reminding our audience about the outstanding allegation. 
And when there are, are updates, we will provide the updates. If there is an investigation, we'll talk about the investigation. But until that happens, we're not going to let it fall off the radar. We're not going to let it out of the spotlight because the true tension needs to be there until it's resolved. And that is the fact that we need to get Trump out of office. So we need to elect this person. But we also need to have this question investigated and resolved so that we can figure out who we're electing. And I'll even say this right now. And there are some people that might hate me for this, but the day that Joe Biden is inaugurated, I'll support an impeachment inquiry. I'll support an investigation into these allegations. And if they turn up something, I will absolutely support impeachment. And I don't care if it's uh, if it's only Republicans pushing for that investigation, I want there to be an investigation. Mm. We need to know the truth of this. It needs to be a good one, a thorough one, one that an is honest one. interested in the truth and honest and impartial. But there needs to be one, yeah. no doubt. All right, and, and on that low note, we will bring it back to a high note with... Uh, our highlights of the week. All right, Nathan, what, what were your highlights last week? Well, my highlight is this podcast <laughs> again, because <laughs> there's been so much anger and tension building up throughout this entire week as mm. I've been sitting by and watching the country implode on itself in every possible way. And it feels good to be able to talk about it on this podcast and to reach potential listeners that might feel the same way I do, or even some that might feel differently, but then, uh, you know, hear my concerns and might think, huh, you know, what he says makes sense. I mean, if you think I make sense, hopefully you do. Um, <laughs> and, and that, and that's been really nice. So I, I'd like to appreciate, I'd, I'd like to say thank you to Michael for doing this podcast with me. Um, it has been really great to uh to have this medium with you brother mm. and uh and really i'd like to thank all of the listeners for staying with us and um for being there to make it so that we're not just screaming into a void <laughs> yeah I, yeah i i feel very similarly uh, this is um you know having the podcast adds work to my life it adds a little bit of stress to my life but Overall, it is a huge net benefit because um, it's a great experience and I love getting to, to work on it. Um, but my highlight uh, is not the podcast this week. Uh, too many good things have happened. So so on Saturday, my family um, got together apart and we congregated in my parents' backyard in our individual like little pods, like 20 feet away from each other. <laughs> and we like hung out at a social distance and it was just so nice. <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, and the second highlight I can't yet mention on the podcast because it is um, not public yet, but it's mm. a absolutely wonderful thing that I'm super excited about and I can't wait to talk about it in the future. Yeah. So with that suspenseful note, Thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum. Really appreciate it. And um, looking forward to putting our episode out next week. 